I feel like all Chris Christie has ever wanted is for Bruce Springsteen to like him. And in trying to get him to like him, he has made himself one of Bruce Springsteen's natural enemies. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the show where we talk about women about whom it can be said, She's so lucky. She's a star, but she cries, cries, cries in her lonely heart, thinking, if there's nothing missing from my life, then why do these tears come at night? Is that Hey Mickey, You're So Fine? That is Lucky by Britney Spears, oh. a song that I think it is, even that even when I was a preteen, I was like, why are they having her sing this if it appears to be true? <laughs> I am Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for The Huffington Post. I'm Sarah Marshall. I'm working on a book about the satanic panic. And if you would like to support us and or hear us talk about Carol Baskin for nearly an hour, sign up on Patreon at <laughs> patreon.com slash you wrong about. We also talked about how we both wanted to date Anthony Perkins and other topics. It's partly Baskin content and partly Perkins content. It's a Baskin Perkins swirl. Yeah, <laughs> we're very proud of it. And of course, if you don't want to support us, that's chill too. I, I don't like this false binary here. I think that people are supporting us by listening to us. That's true. Even one time, even if you listen to half of an episode and you're like, eh, these people say like too much <laughs> and turn it off. You still supported <laughs> us. Ha ha. And today we are talking about Princess Diana for the third time. Act three. How many times is this going to be? I'm guessing five or six. I'm aiming for five. So this episode, we're basically going to talk about the rest of the marriage and then next episode, we're going to talk about the divorce. Mm. And then next, next episode, we're going to talk about her death and the wild conspiracy theories around her death. Okay. I'm excited. As your, as your thesis advisor, <laughs> I say full steam ahead. So as my advisor, do you want to catch us up with uh, where we are with Diana? What's happened so far? As your thesis advisor, I think that you should just bring me little boxes of chocolate and be confused about when my office hours really are, but sure. <laughs> so when we last left Diana, she had just provided the royal family with an heir, mm -hmm. Prince William, and was wildly unhappy and lonely, I believe it's fair to say, mm -hmm. in her marriage to Prince Charles and has made several suicide attempts. Mm -hmm and is also struggling with bulimia. Yes, and this episode, like last episode, is going to have some extremely rough descriptions of Diana's eating disorder. Mm. Yeah. And when last we left her, it seems like she was having a hard time, but no one could conceive of the idea that she might possibly be having a hard time. Right. I mean, one of the things that has struck me as I've continued to read about this marriage is this is an upper class society with a million rules, right? They have all this stuff about how you should dress, when you should dress a certain way. It's, it's all very formal. And yet when it comes to intimate relationships, they're operating without a roadmap. Hmm. We as human societies create these elaborate rules for kind of seeming like things are okay and how to form relationships and not embarrass ourselves with people that we barely know. And yet when it mm. comes to forming relationships, close relationships with people that we do know, there aren't a lot of like social guidelines. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, I think it's, you know, harder to address the problem because there's so much pressure to sort of maintain the front required of a national symbol. Yeah. And also like, how can you seek therapy or whatever you need if like, I assume you need people to be like, 
sworn to confidentiality yeah. and then trailed by James Bond for the rest of their lives. Totally. And you can't trust anybody around you either. I mean, one of the things we're going to come across in the story is the fact that all of their staff is selling secrets to the newspapers. Hmm. So even when they're indoors, they can't be honest about what they're actually feeling. They can't display anything that looks like conflict because it will literally be in the paper the next morning. Hmm. But so... Instead of a insufferable meta comment to begin this episode, we are going to start with something we've never done before. Hmm. We are going to do a table read oh. of a phone conversation between Prince Charles and Camilla Parker Bowles. Oh, my God. Okay, I think I know what conversation this is. I'm so excited. Do you know what happens in this call? Yes, because I think it's the only romantic thing I've heard of Prince Charles doing. And I've always <laughs> been his defender on this because people were always like, that's so gross. That's so unseemly, whatever. And I was like, it's great. He's being, this seems to be his true nature sexually, and he's embracing it and verbalizing it, which is very impressive. What did he, what did he say? What he said was that he wished he could be one of Camilla Parker Bowles' tampons. Yes. yes. I wish I could live in the, in the warm Temple Grandin <laughs> squeeze machine <laughs> of your vagina. <laughs> But so what we are going to do is we are going to read the transcript of the infamous call where okay. you are going to play Camilla. I am going to play Charles. <gasps> and we are going to put this tampon comment in context because in context, it is completely different than the way it's been portrayed. Really? Yes. Okay, let's do it. So check your email. I just sent this to you. Ooh, mm -hmm. Santa has been to my stocking. So this was recorded on December 17th, 1989. So their affair has been restarted for six years at this point. They restarted in 1983. So mm. these are two people who are quite comfortable with each other. Yeah, they've been sleeping together for like the whole 80s almost. Yes, he's seen all of her shoulder pads. <laughs> and the transcript starts kind of in the middle. So it's going to be a little bit confusing at the beginning, but we're just going to read the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, are you ready? Mm -hmm. Okay, here we go. He was a bit anxious, actually. Was he? He thought he might have gone a bit far. Oh, well. Anyway, you know that's the sort of thing one has to beware of and sort of feel one's way along with, if you know what I mean. Hmm. You're awfully good at feeling your way along. Oh, stop. I want to feel my way along you, all over you and up and down you and in and out. Oh. Particularly in and out. Oh, that's just what I need at the moment. Is it? I know it would revive me. I can't bear a Sunday night without you. Oh, God. It's like that program, start the week. I <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's like that program, start the week. I can't start the week without you. I fill up your tank. Yes, you do. Then you can cope. Then I'm all right. What about me? The trouble is I need you several times a week. Mm, so do I. I need you all the week. All the time. Oh, God, I'll just live inside your trousers or something. It would be much easier. What are you going to turn into? A pair of knickers? <laughs> Oh, you're going to come back as a pair of knickers. Or, God forbid, a Tampax. Just my luck. You are a complete idiot. <laughs> what a wonderful idea. My luck to be chucked down a lavatory and go <laughs> on and on forever, swirling around the top, never going down. Oh, darling. Until the next one comes through. Oh, perhaps you could just come back as a box. What sort of box? A box of Tampax, so you could just keep going. That's true. Repeating yourself. Oh, darling. Oh, I just want you now. Do you? Hmm. So do I. This is adorable. Isn't it this the is the cutest? cutest thing. I already thought it was cute. And now it's just, he's so much cuter. It's so cute, dude. I'm almost annoyed at how cute Prince Charles is I know. in this. It's like very PG-13 <laughs> sexual talk. Yes. I love how he's just like, 
I want to live inside your trousers. Yes. <laughs> so I can be like a tiny man who fucks you every morning. Oh, my God. It's just so cute. And it's also this this whole conversation is taking place in a phone call where they're basically running logistics for like, how are we going to have sex in the next week? They're like, Aww. will this country house work? Or like, no, this other person's out of town. We can use their house. So it actually makes sense in the middle of a call about logistics that he would say, oh, it would be much easier if I just lived in your pants the whole time. I love how you're defending Prince Charles by being like, listen, in context, my client had every reason to speculate about being a tiny man who lived in his lover's trousers. Yes. And I'm team just like, listen, people need to be allowed to fantasize verbally about being their partner's tampons. Totally. It's fine. Any, like, any level of dirty talk, as far as I'm concerned, is, like, perfectly fine, right? Like, at any time that I hear people, like, tittering about this phone call, I'm always like, Really, like, your dirty talk would stand up to national scrutiny. Right. Other people's dirty talk is always hilarious. Yes. Like, I remember when Steve Croft from 60 Minutes got busted for sexting or whatever. He was having an affair, I think. But all of the leaked communications were really cute. <laughs> it's very like, I'm so excited to have sex with you, basically, in so many words. I know. And it's frustrating to me when we have sex scandals and people are treated... And I think the Jim Baker case is an mm -hmm. extreme example of this, where like we act with the same amount of like outrage and horror if people are having these sort of like sweet sexual conversations that get leaked or having like cute affairs right. the same way that we judge something really horrible. Totally. Like we can't tell the difference in American mainstream media between adultery and sexual assault. Right. And also the conversation goes on for like 20 more minutes. And what strikes me about the conversation is just, like, this is a portrait of, like, a pretty functional relationship. Mm. What sticks out to me isn't the quote-unquote dirty talk. Mm. These are just two people who seem to really like each other. Like, the call, the reason why it starts in the middle is because the first, like, ten minutes of the call are him reading a speech to her because he's writing a speech. And so mm. he's like, hey, what do you think about this speech of mine? And he reads long sections of it to her. And then she asks, you know, what was the last speech that you gave? He's like, oh, you know, it was in Norwich last Wednesday or something. And she's like, oh, can you send me a copy? That sounds interesting. That's cute. It's just two people that are just like vibing. Yeah. Tina Brown sort of frames this in her book as like, you know, he's getting sex from her. And she she like flatters his masculinity. Like she's pretending to be interested in his speeches, like to boost his ego. And like maybe. Okay, Tina. But also it just seems like they really like each other. Like I think – the sex obviously is a component, but it, it really feels like this is what he's not getting at home. He's just getting somebody yeah. who seems to really like him and he really likes her. I also feel like Prince Charles appears to be someone who's capable of putting his energy into sort of growing and maintaining and gardening to use a vocabulary he understands. Mm -hmm. One relationship. And this is the relationship. Yes. And like, he knows he's not doing the work. Like, he knows that he has two gardens. Mm -hmm. And one is this beautiful hothouse full of melons and orchids. Mm -hmm. And one is like this dying patch. And he's like, <laughs> I'm putting in hours. Don't yeah. bother me. I mean, this is, you know, this is an act of infidelity. He's lying to Diana. The whole, the whole thing is gross and immoral. And I wish that all of these people were mature enough to just admit everything. I'm more bothered by the fact that she's in such a difficult position in terms of having married into the royal family. Like, I, you know, my thinking on this is, like, if you can't restrain yourself from, like, sharing all your genuine warmth and human connection with your longtime mistress, and if you can't cultivate a real connection with Diana, then, like, fine, you can't control that. But, like, you did this. Like, yeah. you created 
this princess. Like, you brought her yeah. into this world. You decided it was a good idea to propose to her. Like, this is like adopting a dog and then it has some behavioral issues and you're like, whatever, I'm just going to create it. You know, it's just like, right. I don't care if people have affairs as much as I care about how living things treat each other. Yeah. I feel like he has the resources to figure out that like he bears a responsibility to her for bringing her into this very difficult world that he knows to be difficult because yes. it seems like his life has been a big bummer in a way that he's aware right. of. And there's an interesting duality here too, where by all accounts, it seems like he has a very functional relationship with Camilla and his relationship with Diana is unbelievably dysfunctional at this point. He's yeah. one of the comments. This is really bad. One of the comments that shows up in Andrew Morton's book is that because he knows that she's struggling with bulimia, they'll be sitting down at a dinner and she's like, oh, this looks good. And he'll be like, isn't that just going to come up later? Uh, what a fucking waste. There is literally an episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza is dating a woman who he suspects of being bulimic. And he says that, but even George Costanza knows <laughs> that you would never say that to I know. someone's face. He says it to Jerry. It is this fascinating portrait to me of how the chemistry between two different people can make somebody an absolute fucking monster in one relationship and kind and generous in another relationship at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, this oftentimes gets sort of blamed on the woman. Like, what is it about Diana that made him act this way? No, I think that there's something about the relationship between the two of them that just starts off on the wrong foot and that wrong yeah. foot just gets like bigger and like blisterier and wartier and more <sighs> gangrenous over time. Ugh, oh God. Thank you, Mike. I thought you would enjoy that. But like, yeah, I feel like relationships can take us to places that we never imagined I ourselves know. in. And I, I think also just like being in a state of emotional deprivation and not, yeah. you know, feeling like you're, you're stuck in this partnership with someone with whom you have no emotional connection. Like mm -hmm. emotional starvation makes us do pretty intense things as yeah. much as any other kind of starvation, yeah. I think. Yeah. So, uh, we have fewer outfits this episode, but we do have some outfits. Would you like to see them? Oh, yes. Like last time, I'm going to make a blog post with all of these and leave a link in the description. Ooh. So, Skype machine. This one is out of context. I'm uh, interested to hear what you think it is. <laughs> this is wonderful. Okay. So this is a beautiful, dramatic black and white shot of Princess Diana on the left and mm -hmm. some dancer on the right. Mm -hmm. They're doing like jazz hands. Yeah. I mean, I would say maybe Bob Fosse, but there's not enough gloves or shrugging. <laughs> Princess Diana has a, a happy expression yeah. and she's caught mid motion. Like her skirt is sort of billowing yeah. around her legs in a way that suggests how much motion there is mm -hmm. uh, in what they're doing. And it's a really beautiful shot. It's lovely. So she looks like she's dancing with somebody and having yeah. a good time. So this is 14 months after she has Prince Harry. Mm. As a sign of how bad the marriage is, even going into this pregnancy, she finds out in December of 1983 that she's pregnant. Both her and Charles want a girl. Mm. She finds out in April that it's a boy, but she doesn't tell Charles until after Harry's born. Oh, wow. Huh. That's intense. So the performance that you are seeing in the picture there happens at the Royal Ballet in December of 1985. There's this thing at the Royal Ballet where it's like a night of sort of hijinks. Like they'll do sort of sketches and like, you know, Stephen Fry will come mm -hmm. and do like a voiceover thing. Mm -hmm. So 
Charles and Diana, of course, go, and they're sitting in the royal box. Two-thirds of the way into it, Diana leans over and she's like, uh, sweetie darling, please excuse me to go to the tink tink room or however, whatever euphemism they use for go to the bathroom. <laughs> and then about five minutes later, the curtain on the stage goes up and she is in the dance company. Ooh. What Charles doesn't know is that for the last couple weeks, she has been rehearsing with the Royal Ballet, a dance Aww. number set to Billy Joel's Uptown Girl. <gasps> oh, I know. That's the best. I know. She is the most uptown of all the uptown girls. And so they do this entire routine and they, you know, she used to teach ballet. She danced ballet for many years. Like she's good at this. But so she gets nine standing ovations. And as she's getting these standing ovations, she does like a little curtsy to the royal box. That's so cute. I love that. But then afterwards, he is like pretty publicly kind of a dick about it. Why? I know. There's a reception afterwards where he is seen sort of not really congratulating her. You know, the way that like a husband sort of should like, oh, my God, sweetie, that was amazing. You did that for me. You kept it a secret. Like, this could be such a cute moment. Yes. The way that she describes it to Andrew Morton is that he was mad at her for being, quote, undignified, too thin, too showy. Right. This is not behavior becoming of a royal. You know what's undignified? Freezing your wife in public is undignified. I know. I know. Utter, utter Chad. Tina Brown describes it, and I think that she's kind of on to something. He also feels left out because last year they actually did a comedy skit together. And so all of a sudden, because her star is rising and she is, there's a poll that comes out around this time that shows that she's by far the most popular member of the royal family. Mm-hmm. She's sort of secretly done this thing with the royal ballet and didn't really invite him. Because it was a surprise. I know. It's a surprise. It's totally understandable to me that his feelings would be hurt. And it's also very understandable to me that he would not be capable of describing it to her in those terms. Yes, because he's a little handshaking leg. You can imagine a conversation between them where he's like, look, this was really special to me last year. And it's one of the few things that I get to do every year where people think that I'm fun. Yeah. But he's not capable of describing it to her in those terms. So what she hears is it's too showy. It's too undignified. How dare you? It ends up being this thing that could have been like a a milestone of communication, but ends up being a milestone of just resentment. Yes. He used Billy Joel for resentment. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's also, I mean, what fascinates me about this incident too, is he knows there's cameras at this reception. He can't fake his way through this incident and just be like, sweetie, that was amazing. I was delighted. Like, just from a pure media perspective, it's incredible to me that he can't, like, make a display of wonderment. Show the kids that you love mommy. Yes. It's weird to me that... Princess Diana marries into this family and immediately understands, you know, as any female celebrity would, that it is her job to create emotional compositions for Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And Prince Charles, who has been doing this for his whole goddamn life, has never figured that out. And like, because he's a man, like, that's obviously less required of him. But that's still his job. That's still what he, what does he think he does? Does he think that he's governing a country? I mean, Tina Brown calls it a political tin ear. He doesn't seem very good at anticipating what stories will be or how things will look. There's an incident later where Prince William gets in an accident. It's he's playing with another kid and he accidentally gets hit in the head with a golf club. And so, you know, it's a head injury. Like they have to take him in for scans. I think there's a minor surgery involved. 
And so as all this is happening, he's being transferred from one hospital to the other, etc. Prince Charles keeps a social engagement to go see the opera with a bunch of European diplomats that are visiting the UK. Yeah. You know, his excuse for this in the biography is that like, well, you know, it was scheduled. There wasn't much I could do because we're just waiting to get results. Right. He's like Ben Affleck and Gone Girl. Oh, totally. Exactly. It's like there's fucking journalists at an opera. You're going to go see fucking Tosca when your son is in surgery. So like, <laughs> of course, there's a million headlines the next day of like, yeah. what kind of father does this? Yeah. And it's like, do you not get that you're a public figure? And so Diane is also extra fucked because like whenever she does something that people respond positively to, he gets jealous. Yes. And whenever he does something inept that make people dislike him, he's like, why do people dislike me? I know. And then she also, I assume, has to suffer for that. Yes. And there's... <laughs> There's the one like bit of revenge that I love on this. There's an incident where he breaks his arm in some sort of polo accident. He's in the hospital. There's like six weeks of physical therapy. It's like a long recovery period. And during this period, there's all of this speculation about like, how did he really break his arm? Isn't it embarrassing enough to break your arm in a polo accident? <laughs> but so this is bananas. So he's sort of out of public life for a while, which also sparks a bunch of speculation. His idea is to hold a press conference with a fake arm with a hook at the end of it. What? So he was going to tell the press that he had a fucking, he lost his arm and he was going to be what? using a fake arm. And then he was like in some dramatic fashion at this press conference, he was going to like rip off the fake arm and be like, see, I don't have a fake arm. I'm actually fine. And that was going to like show the press what? how dumb they were. What did he, what? Oh my God. That's so bizarre. That suggests that he really hasn't learned how to do like the basics of, of what he does. And it's like, you don't think that's just going to make it worse, Tiger? You don't think they're going to be meaner <laughs> to you after that, dude? He's like, I'll trick them into treating me better by doing something really bizarre in yes. front of them and giving them an amazing story to talk about for days and yeah, days. Yeah, that makes me look like a huge fucking doofus. Mm -hmm. So what Diana does, she instructs his staff, she's like, look, just get him the fake arm. And then on the day of the press conference, pretend that you lost the fake arm. That's so smart. And so they do this whole thing where they get him the fucking hook arm. And then like an hour before the press conference, they're like, oh, God, we, we must have left it in the trunk of a car. We don't know where it is. And it's like, oops, guess you better just give a normal fucking press conference. And that's what he does. That's really smart. <laughs> Because he's dead set on this. Like, you can't talk him out of these absurd ideas. No, and you can't be like, Charles, that's a bad idea. Yes, she gets the kinds of images that she has to produce to remain popular. And he just has no idea. Mm -hmm. There's also a very weird loophole. Hmm. One thing that starts happening, even as she becomes really popular, she's the people's princess. Everybody really likes her. The press still speculates that she's having an affair constantly. I mean, that's just like an evergreen accusation. Yeah. Sure. There's a thing where she sits next to a guy named David Waterhouse at a David Bowie concert. And it's actually she's there with this guy, David, and someone else. So it's her and two guys. And you know, like when you're sitting between two people, you'll kind of turn to one and talk and then turn to the other and talk like normal humans do. Mm -hmm. The tabloids take a photo of the three of them and crop out the third guy mm. and make it look like she's seeing this David Bowie concert with this David guy. They really buried the lead. They should have speculated about her and David Bowie. I know. <laughs> But then what's amazing is there's all this constant speculation about her with dudes. If she, there was, she had to cancel a lunch with Terrence Stamp 
who's like kind of an <gasps> advisor of hers, like speeches what? and shit. But she has to stop hanging out with him in person because there's all this speculation about Terrence Stamp and her having sex. I mean, it is kind of a great celebrity pairing, to be fair. But what's amazing is, of course, as this is happening, Charles is sleeping with Camilla. And Charles and Camilla are not being all that fucking subtle about it. Mm-hmm. Diana will drive away from their country home. And then like 15 minutes later, Camilla's car will arrive. Mm-hmm. And yet... Nothing appears in the papers about Charles and Camilla for years. I smell a big fucking rat. It sucks. As I was reading these various sources, I noted down all of the euphemisms that they used for Camilla. Mm. In the newspapers, they'll talk about Charles was, you know, seen on a beach in Turkey with his female confidant, Camilla Parker Bowles. Ah! Another one says extramarital chummery. Ah! Like, what does that even mean? That's when you go out on a boat and you have sex with someone you're not married to and you throw out a bunch of uh, innards and you try and attract a shark. (laughs) But it is just like a bizarro world thing. Mm -hmm. There's just constant speculation about her and no speculation about the thing that he is actually doing. Yes. Okay. Are you ready for another photo? Uh Uh-huh. This is what she's wearing on the day her marriage ends. Not legally, but functionally. Wow. That's a very specific occasion to dress for. But look how nice she looks. Yeah. No, she looks gorgeous. It's a white dress. It's a very white dress. Mm -hmm. Shoulder pads, a tight waist. It kind of blouses out in front and uh, a a big pearl necklace. Do you want to uh, make any metaphorical significance of the fact that she's wearing something wrapped around her neck so many times (laughs) on such a terrible day? People can draw their own comparisons. People can do those. So this is her at Expo 86 in Vancouver, Canada. Oh, wow. This is essentially rock bottom for her eating disorder, although she doesn't actually get help for the eating disorder for two more years. Mm. She basically hasn't eaten in three days. Uh. And so... Halfway through the day, she puts her arm on Charles's shoulder and she whispers, darling, I think I'm about to disappear. And she faints. Uh. And of course, you know, a million people rush into action. They get her to the hotel room. And then after she sort of gets stabilized, she and Charles in the hotel room get in a huge fight. Uh. He insists that she shows up for the formal dinner that night. Oh. My God, Charles. I think this is very interesting. And this goes into what we talked about last week about fame being abuse. So his argument for you have to show up for this big formal dinner tonight is if you faint in public and then you don't appear that night, that is going to fuel weeks of speculation. Listen to the man behind the the great hook arm caper. (laughs) But he says, if you faint during the afternoon and then you show up at a formal dinner and things look fine, they're going to drop this. It's like, you're right, Charles. You and your family know all about emotional health and the media. You've never been wrong before about either of these things. I mean, I do actually think that he's correct. Sure. If you faint and then you don't appear in public life. Yeah, that's going to be fucking weeks of speculation and it's going to be miserable. But she doesn't need a media strategist right now. She needs... A husband. Right. Well, my question is like, is that the first and only thing he says to her? I mean, this is the thing. Because uh-huh. she tells this in Andrew Morton's book as he's basically rolling his eyes at her and saying like, you're being dramatic. Like, why do you have to make everything into such a disaster? Like, why do you have to turn everything to shit? Uh, and then in his biography is where we get the argument that like, oh, I was doing this for like press management purposes. So I think right. she's probably getting both messages. You got to hand it to Charles. You know, he never sat back and 
felt sorry for himself or for the fact that when he was a little child, all his friends were Oxbridge Dons. I know. <laughs> and like how great he turned out. He's very good at his job and he's a good husband and, and no one thinks he's, he's a ridiculous Pasho who talks to plants all day and dreams of being reborn as a tampon. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that, but he's in the wrong line of work. But this is an interesting moment to me because this, this is basically the moment when both of them give up on even trying Um, to have a functional relationship. Yeah. There is often a moment like that. Yeah, It's like a simultaneous orgasm. She experiences this as the last straw, as in, no matter how fucked up I am, I cannot get him to care about me. Like, there is no extreme that I can fall to where he will just shut the fuck up and, like, help me out. Yeah, He experiences this as, no matter how much support I give her, no matter how much I do for her, She's still super fucked up. Mm. This is from his abysmal biography published in 2017. Oh, dear. Diana disliked nearly everything her husband loved. His country pursuits, his polo, his painting, his gardening. She had come around somewhat on opera, but had little use for Shakespeare. She was indifferent to architecture, alternative medicine, and the environment. Oh, my gosh. She was indifferent to architecture? I know. It's He's filtering all of this through his interests yeah it's also not true that she's not interested in alternative medicine that's that's another interesting thing because she's doing like acupuncture and tai chi and meditation she's actually interested in this stuff and he easily could have connected with her on it if he had tried asking sweetie what are you into Mm. but so what's amazing is after this event they have this really kind of dark and depressing marriage where both of them are dedicated to producing images for the newspapers and nothing else so on sort of official trips, they have separate hotel rooms when they do these like official diplomatic tour of Bulgaria or whatever. And they have at events, they have to seem like they're arriving together. <laughs> so they start running these absurd logistics so that they can stay completely separate as long as possible and then meet somewhere like wow. 10 minutes before the event and then like walk into the event like arm in arm. Oh, my God. This is like parent trap level yeah. logistics. This is from the Andrew Morton book. As a close friend commented, she seems to dread Charles's appearance. The days when she is happiest is when he is in Scotland. When he's at Kensington Palace, she feels absolutely at a loss and like a child again. She loses all the ground she has built up when she is on her own. Hmm. So she experiences being around him as just like a nonstop belittling experience. Hmm. There's a scene where they're on some like ambassador tour to Qatar or something and they're speaking to some high up, you know, government official or something. And the three of them are chatting and this government official guy asked Diana, like, oh, what are you looking forward to about Qatar? And she has like a schedule. She's like going to visit orphanages. She's like doing stuff. And she sort of takes in a breath to start telling this guy all the stuff that she has on her schedule. And Charles just says like, oh, she's shopping. She's mostly shopping. Anyway. Oh, my God. And then just goes back to what he was talking about. And of course, she can't really contradict him in public. So she's like, yep, just doing the shopping. You know Uh, how I am. I can see why the public was so fascinated by them because like... Like, she's so compelling as a public figure and so charismatic and any kind of royal marriage is interesting. But also there's just the fact that, like, the public can tell when people hate each other. Oh, yeah. And are pretending that they don't. And, like, the tension from that is, like, intense. Yes. There's a million photos, too, of them sitting in a car and you can just see, like, the stone of silence between them. They just look so miserable. There's a – I think it's like a World Cup soccer match where they sit next to each other for 90 minutes and do not look at each other or exchange a word. Oh, my God. I didn't know that it was that bad. I didn't know that, like, they were just not communicating for a lot of their marriage. Yeah. Ugh. That's so stressful. So the next photo I'm about to show you is of Princess Diana with a gentleman. 
Boom. Ooh, is that a polo player or a jockey or something? He's like a horse dude. Yeah, it's a, a horse dude. Yeah, that's the official term. He's a uh, household cavalry for what? Buckingham Palace. I do not understand this country. I feel like horse dude is a more accurate description. He's like in charge of the horses. He's like a former army guy who did horse stuff. And now he's like in charge of the Buckingham Palace horse dude. Okay. Yeah. he's the, Yeah, he is the horse dude. Yeah. He's a very cute horse dude. Isn't he? Yes. And she appears to be giving him a silver chalice with a little horse on top. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and so she, and she's wearing a cute, it's kind of like uh, one of Julia Roberts's outfits in Pretty Woman. It is, yeah. She's got a black polka dot tank top. And so she's presenting the silver chalice to the horse dude. And mm-hmm. he's he's got the expression that you would expect on a horse dude. Mm-hmm. He's being given a, a silver horse chalice by a beautiful princess. Yes. And uh, what color is his hair, Sarah? I knew it. I knew it. I knew. I knew that people would speculate about this. I just knew it. You filthy, filthy meanies. Okay. He has ginger hair. Yes. But mm-hmm. bonus debunking, there's all kinds of speculation that he is the actual father of Harry, but she didn't actually start sleeping with him until like two years after Harry was born. Oh, but they did have an affair, though. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I was getting to that. Yes. Okay. I feel like it's more okay to speculate about parentage if like, they, if he isn't just some random <laughs> you know, man she gave a <laughs> goblet to one time. No, they had numerous sexes, but they didn't have sex before Harry was born. Okay. Also, there's also extremely unconvincing photos of sort of his face next to prince harry's face and like look at the evidence and they'll highlight like his nose shape and his like cheek height or whatever and it's like so unconvincing like it just looks like an adult male right well i mean the thing is that like there just isn't that much diversity of facial features between human beings yeah we just all kind of look like each other you could basically take a a front ways shot of prince harry and a front way shot of like William Hurt, and they would probably look <laughs> quite similar. Like they're both like white middle aged dudes. Like it's not it's not totally out of the ordinary that they would have some similarities. Wow, Prince Harry is middle aged. I have to digest that information. <laughs> But so this man's name is James Hewitt. James Hewitt, the horse dude. He is her second affair. Mm. Were you aware of this? No. Who is her first affair? Her first affair is with a guy named Barry Manicky, who is one of her security guards. Oh. It's still not clear, like, if whatever, whatever happened. Mm-hmm. But she does admit in these sort of lost Diana tapes that from 1984 to 1986, she had a huge crush on one of her bodyguards. Hmm. You know, Tina Brown, as usual, is very interested in the sort of P in the V aspects and like, did they have sex? But it's very clear that she had like some sort of emotional affair with this person. He, you know, as her bodyguard, he spends an incredible amount of time with her. And, you know, she cries a lot. She's someone who's struggling with (laughs) a lot of issues. And so, you know, she'll go out and do these events with people and then she'll kind of come back to the limousine exhausted and he'll sort of cradle her while she sort of recovers. Oh, wow. This is someone who, like, she's wow. very close with. She has to get emotional support from somewhere. Exactly. And she's not getting it from anywhere else. Mm-hmm. One of the quotes in Andrew Morton's book is from a friend of hers who says, He really had the hots for her. He acquired all these cashmere sweaters all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. I love that. That's lovely. That's so cute. So that's how you can tell something happened. Yes. She's like, I need you to have a soft sweater when I'm crying on your sweater. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So Tina Brown quotes three different people saying this was a full-blown affair. Hmm. But I I, I don't know if like that's all that important. It it clearly was an emotional affair. It clearly was like a romantic relationship Mm -hmm. on some level. So like maybe there was sex, but it seems like 
the primary importance of the relationship in her life was giving her this sympathy and empathy yeah. and just emotional warmth and just feelings i think he's probably super duper smitten with her i mean it's also something kind of amazing sure. that, you know she's so beautiful she's so famous she's so luminescent and yet everyone in her life is so cold to her right she doesn't right. get warmth from the royal I family know. she doesn't get warmth from her husband and so just the fact that this guy was really into her and she's getting gaslit all day yeah because she's like aren't i lovable a little yes. bit and all the people in her immediate interactions are like not really yeah so it makes sense that she would latch on to the first guy who's like nice to her and clearly like is smitten with her and makes her feel beautiful yes and so in 1987 barry manicky gets transferred to some other regiment something something he gets transferred out of the palace Hmm. So basically, all of a sudden, overnight, he disappears. Hmm. And then, this is wild, he fucking dies. He gets in a motorcycle accident <gasps> on May 22nd, what? 1987. Oh, oh, God. So... He is riding on the back of a friend's motorcycle and a 17-year-old girl pulls out of a side road and hits mm. the motorcycle and he dies. Oh, that's terrible. That's really terrible. <sighs> What's just very unfortunate and sucky about this is that there's speculation that he was murdered. And it appears huh. Princess Diana, like, she eventually becomes much more paranoid than she is now. It appears that she huh. believed that he was murdered, that, like, a hit was taken out on him. I mean, that makes sense that she would find that believable. Yeah. She's like, well, everyone's being real hostile to me and has been this entire time. So, like, yeah. why not? Why wouldn't they? Who knows? There's also the mother of the 17-year-old girl gives an interview to the Daily Express where the headline on the story is, Why I Believe Diana's Lover Was Murdered. Okay, all right. But this poor woman talks to Tina Brown and says, I don't think that he was murdered. The paper completely oh made that up. Like they said, oh, no. I specifically said, make sure you don't print this as like a conspiracy theory story. And then this conspiracy theory article comes out. So like British tabloids, great work, everybody. Wow. There's also a really chilling moment the way that she finds out that he's been killed is Prince Charles tells her. <gasps> oh. It's pretty likely that he knew just because, uh. like, gossip goes around the royal palace like COVID-19. <sighs> and so Charles either sort of maliciously is, like, the one to break it to her to see what her reaction is, right? Or he's uh -huh. totally fucking clueless. And is just like, oh, hey, fun fact. Do you remember that bodyguard? Yeah, either way. So – he apparently they're on their way to the Cannes Film Festival and he tells her and she just has to be like, uh, mm, that that's too bad. He was a good bodyguard and has to like hold it all in until Charles isn't around. Oh, Brutal. no. Oh, that's terrible. I know. Oh. But so after Barry gets transferred before he dies, Diana starts her relationship with the horse dude. And this goes on mm. for five years. Oh, wow. It's nice that she has some steady horse dude, yes. you know, stuff. So this is what Tina Brown says about Diana's affair with James Hewitt. Indeed, from beginning to end, it was Diana who ran this affair. She was as much in control of its pace and rhythms as she had been out of control of the pace and rhythms leading up to her marriage. This would be her romantic pattern from now on. Forget the modest blushing. She would do the initiating. Mm. There were few men bold enough to make the first move on the Princess of Wales. The affair mm. took place on her schedule and on her turf, Kensington Palace and Highgrove when Charles was away. Wow. Princess Diana, the Sharon Stone years. I know. It's kind of dope. She meets him. I guess he's at Buckingham Palace for like a some sort of horse logistics meeting. He walks out of the room 
and he looks down the stairs and there's Diana at the bottom of the stairs holding her shoes in her hands and barefoot and just chatting to some friends. Hmm. He looks at her. She looks back. And I guess she just sees him and is like, oh, and starts asking around. I mean, she like really goes for it and is like, who's the horse dude that's like around? Like I saw him. <laughs> he has like big beefy thighs. Like what's his deal? And so she <laughs> finds out who he is and like invites him to a party uh-huh. and then saunters up to him at the party and is like, hello. She says something along the lines of, I've always resisted learning to ride horses because, you know, it's something my husband does. It's never really been my thing. But, you know, I think now is really the time for Mm. me to learn to ride horses. Uh, Do you think you could give me lessons? Mm. This guy is like Billy Baldwin in The Squid and the Whale. Yes. So this is a Baldwin horse dude. Little horse Baldwin centaur. (laughs) And so he starts giving her riding lessons. She's way into it. Apparently, she'll start sort of taking trips away from these country homes. She'll like drive into London like two hours, have a lesson with him and then drive back to these miserable, freakishly cold country homes. Horses are just sexy. Like everything about horses and horse culture Mm -hmm. is sexy. And you get to say the word ride a lot and Mm. stalk and haunches. Try to not have an affair with someone hot who's teaching you to ride a horse. I know. Uh All right, you're killing me, Mike. Let's move forward. Let's press on. So according to him, they are hanging out in Buckingham Palace after one of these lessons, and she reaches over and kisses him. Mm, More like Fuckingham Palace. (laughs) And then they, you know, they start this affair that goes on sort of off and on for five years, and it seems like it's quite productive. I mean, like, she likes him. She brings him around the kids. You really are a project management queen. I mean... (laughs) You're like, the incidence of sexual acts appears to be quite high. He seems kind of like her sex idiot. (laughs) She likes him and she's enjoying herself. But it also doesn't seem like a sort of a soulmate situation. No, you don't want to have a soulmate when you're stuck in a cold marriage and like you're feeling powerless. And she needs like a, a lovely... Just like a lovely horse dude to have sex with. Yes. Yeah. And then in 1989, he gets posted to Germany. Hmm. She tries to pull strings to sort of get rid of this appointment. It's not clear if Charles had anything to do with the appointment, but he gets sent to Germany. And that's basically the end of the relationship. They try long distance. She sends him letters. She sends him magazines in the mail. She sends him Playboy, Penthouse, and Horse Hound. These are like (laughs) his reading material, I guess. But once he's out of her orbit, she doesn't, like, really keep a candle burning for him necessarily. Mm. If it, this is super fucked up. Eventually, he sells his story to the tabloids. And somebody writes a book mm. about their love affair, and he eventually writes a memoir. Mm. And then she mm. just cuts him off and never speaks to him again. Mm. Yeah, that's rough. That kind of betrayal would be really damaging if that was, like, the first relationship that you tried to have after I know. entering into this also very damaging marriage. It sucks. Mm. All right, next picture. We're blasting through these. Yay. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I love this picture. This is a lovely picture. Isn't it nice? <laughs> yes. This reminds me of the wedding and working girl, these outfits. Oh, yeah. So I believe I'm looking at a picture of Princess Diana with the lovely Sarah Ferguson, or as I know her, Fergie. Yes, my lovely lady lumps. So they're both wearing little suits, and Fergie has big puffy shoulder pads. It's an electric blue suit. Mm-hmm. And then she has black leather gloves on. Yeah. It's honestly very hot. Murder gloves. It's great. Yeah. yeah. And Princess Diana is looking at her with, with a happy, 
laughing face and she's yeah. holding the hand of a little boy who I imagine is likely William or Harry. I also just love this photo because it's just the perfect encapsulation of their relationship because they're in all this like royal mm. shit. They're wearing like 18 layers of taffeta, right? Like it's just very <laughs> formal and yet they're giggling about something. Oh yeah. No, it's beautiful. It looks like a genuine moment between, you know, two friends. What do you know about Fergie actually? Uh, I know Fergie guested on the double episode of Friends where everyone goes to London and Ross says Emily. Oh. So I primarily know her for her work on Friends. <laughs> no, I know that she married into the uh, royal family mm-hmm. and I-, I think was just like, sexy royal i feel like was her reputation do you know how she knew diana uh i bet they were at school together or something like that close they are fourth cousins Oh, so they were like in each other's orbit as kids that's cute and then they sort of reconnect when diana is 19 and fergie is 21 diana's actually the way that fergie got into the royal family because diana's having a party and she seats fergie next to prince andrew charles's brother so In 1986, Fergie marries Prince Andrew, and she kind of becomes like a partner in crime with Diana. Like, I think of it as sort of like a ghost world situation. These two women who just feel like outcasts, even though, you know, by any other standard, these are both, of course, very upper class women. But compared to the royal family, they are basically Daria from MTV. They're goths. The takeaway is that Princess Diana and Sarah Ferguson are goths. Yes. Okay. Diana finally has someone to sort of giggle with at all of the absurdity of royal life. She becomes kind of a mentor to Fergie. Like the the person that Diana never had was like, hey, here's how this works. Oh, it's like Molly Brown and Titanic. Yes. Remember when Jack gets all the silverware and she's like, just start from the outside and work your way in. Yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly. Uh. It really is a breath of fresh air for Diana to finally have another quote unquote normal person. And you know, one of her cousins, somebody she's known from childhood yeah. to be yeah. at these miserable Balmoral six week long periods, right? Uh. Another reporter tells Tina Brown that he saw them sort of doing all of their like royal duties at some party and then within 15 minutes they both just sneak out the back barefoot because like they both think that the whole thing is stupid that's lovely but then eventually there's a wedge between them Hmm. first of all the press the press loves the narrative of a cat fight yeah we do so the press starts taking silly dumb little things that happen between them and blowing them up Mm. this is what tina brown says it became fat Fergie against wonderful Diana. Oh, Her dress was often compared negatively to Diana's. Who has an eating disorder. I know. And also she has way more money. And like, yeah. I mean, this is something that happens a lot with the royal family is that the royal family themselves are reading what is in the paper. Mm-hmm. And then it affects the way that they treat each other, which then feeds into what ends up in the paper. Right. So it's like these sort of yeah. weird self-fulfilling prophecies. So this creates this like pretty fake rivalry between Diana and Fergie, but then after a while of this, it becomes a real rivalry. Mm-hmm. Also, this is also very like ghost worldish. Fergie starts enjoying herself in the royal family. Mm. She sort of starts bonding with the queen. She starts doing riding, like sort of covered buggy stuff with Prince Philip, who I guess is into that. Mm. And Tina Brown says, the queen liked her new daughter-in-law because she was a country girl, a real one this time, with an unfeigned passion for riding derived from a childhood on the Hampshire horse show circuit. (laughs) 
A friend of the Queen's told her biography, the Queen was very fond of Fergie. She liked the way she used to sit with her legs apart making jokes. <laughs> and the Queen starts having lunch with Fergie sometimes. And Diana's like, well, she never wants to have lunch with me. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like you think that your friendship is based on sort of look at these idiots. You know, we're the, we're the goth kids like smoking cigarettes out behind the middle school. And then this person starts to sort of be one of the people that you've kind of been making fun of. Yes, there's like a million Disney Channel original movies about just this phenomenon. She's transforming into everything that Diana can't be. Mm -hmm. And also, even though Diana is very skeptical and kind of angry at the royal family during this period, she still wants their acceptance. Don't you love how like these exact same family dynamics could happen like anywhere on a smaller scale? Like this in-law stuff. I know. Really expensive clothes and really expensive sets. Yeah. It's also, this is dark. It's also kind of like mental health stuff in that Charles starts making little comments to Diana. Like, well, Fergie's really happy at Balmoral. Why can't you be more like Fergie? Oh. Oh, which is like, dude. Put them against each other, Charles. That'll improve things. Uh. I don't know why I'm referencing Seinfeld so much lately, but Charles should do the opposite <laughs> of all of his instincts. <laughs> oh god i just this is like supporting someone with depression 101 uh-huh. don't make like facile comparisons like why can't you be happy like your sister because uh-huh. you're not only poisoning that person against you you're also poisoning against the other person uh-huh. so of course diana starts to kind of resent how like bubbly fergie is and how much fergie enjoys mm. what are still to her extremely miserable periods at this big-ass cold house in Scotland. Yeah, it's when your friend comes to a new school and then they, you know, know. they become a prep. I know. This literally, I literally did this in freshman year of high school. It's so painful to read about. It's like, yeah, Yeah. you start to hate this other person because they make different choices. Yeah. But it's not them, it's the system. Yeah, it's the preparyarchy. But this is what's so amazing to me is that one of the most shocking things about reading Andrew Morton's book about Diana is how much time she spent alone Hmm. on a lot of nights because she's so drained from meeting, you know, 500 people that day and shaking a million hands. She'll just like hang out by herself and watch EastEnders. You know, you imagine these like big celebrity lives and they're like out doing things and on the party circuit all the time. But this is what Diana says in Andrew Morton's book. I swam every day. I never went out at night. I didn't burn candles at both ends. I got up very early in the morning on my own to be on my own. And nighttime, I went to bed early. Yeah, that sounds nice. And then Andrew Morton says, her greatest luxury in life was to sit down with baked beans on toast and watch television. Mm. That's my idea of paradise, she said. Okay, speaking as an introvert myself Mm -hmm. and saying that, you know, once again, we are speculatively using the introvert theory Mm -hmm. of Princess Diana. If your job is meeting and greeting thousands and thousands of people and like constant interactions being in the public eye doing all the ceremonial stuff being in situations where you're being seen by hundreds or thousands of people Mm -hmm. where the media is following you like i think you need a ton of recuperation time so like i don't think that princess is the ideal job for someone yeah who you know is of a constitution where like princessing means that like they just need to be sort of like lying on their backs watching eastenders and eating beans on toast but also that's to say that that sounds to me like a perfect evening and i think i will do that tonight yes 
You deserve it. Aww. Because you were extroverted and you recorded the show with me for three hours and then you're exhausted. And so it's sweatpants time. It's true. I'm always very tired yeah. on show days. You and I, but we've talked about this. We are both like laid flat yes. after we record, which is, yeah. And I think that's introvert exhaustion. So yes. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I think it's so interesting. I mean, we hear so much about, you know, Elton John was friends with her and various celebrities are friends with her. And it sounds like most of these friendships are like pretty shallow. You know, they'll have lunch once a month or something. But it doesn't seem like she has close relationships. She's also becoming much less trusting at this time generally. Yeah. And how many times has she been snitched on or spied exactly. on, right? Like, why would you trust anyone? It's like, if you're this continually surveilled, yeah. like that would really mess with your head. She's also estranged from her own family. Mm. So this is from the transcripts of Andrew Morton's book. And he doesn't include this in his book, I think, because it's just like so out there mean. She's talking about her mother's marriage with the, you know, sheep farmer guy is breaking up at this point. Mm. So she says, she wanted him out of the house, so he went. He was a bit of a manic depressive and a drinker. And when mom heard that he'd fallen in love with another lady, she went spare. I used to ring her up and she'd cry down the telephone. I'd tell her, you know, mom, you've had two goes at marriage and you can't get it right. You've got to look at yourself. I'm stuck in this one and I'm worse off than you. She didn't like that. You must let me cry. You must let me cry. So I said, huh. you can cry as much as you like. It's good to cry, but you're not getting any sympathy from me. Huh. Which is mean, dude. It's so mean. Mm. I feel like this is really reminding me of the Anna Nicole Smith story because mm. I feel like one of the lessons here is like, you know, looking at marrying this obscenely wealthy, fancy man and being like, yeah, I think that I can, uh, that I understand the situation going into it and that I can benefit from it. And just underestimating the like swirling maelstrom that you're about to be caught by and guess this 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 funnel that you can't get out of yeah and that often manifests itself as like really mean behavior yes the people who need our help are often very mean yes and the things that you hate the most about yourself are the things that you recognize in other people yes and so she sees her mom doing this and like oh another failed marriage mom get it together also it's a way of not recognizing yourself and maybe like talking to that aspect of yourself in a way that you don't see is that there's also this is super fucked up and i thought about not including this but it feels like really disingenuous not to include this mm -hmm. there is an incident her brother young charles is getting married and so they all go back to the old house to sort of get ready for this marriage and there's you know a couple days of activities and rehearsals etc cetera, etc cetera. and she sees her mother and her father are in the same place. She doesn't see that that often. And both her father and, you know, his wife, Diana's stepmother, Rain Legs, pretend that they don't see her mother. Huh. Like literally look through her. And they're sitting at the same yeah. dinner table and they won't speak to her and she won't speak to them. And Diana just gets livid. She's like, what the fuck is this? Why are you acting like children? Why do you have to act like all of this is real? Like this is absolutely ridiculous way to behave when all this is like a decade in the past at this point. Mm -hmm. And so I guess she's sort of confronts Rain about this and they're shouting at each other and she fucking pushes Rain down the stairs. Wow. 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 That's it. And this is like an old lady, right? This is like an old, old lady, rain dude. at this point. And people talk about like bruises. Wow. She pushed an old lady down the stairs. It's so bad. It's funny because like this is the kind of behavior that when people, you know, do this, if they're poor, it's like we're, they get accused of being white trash. Oh, I know. Cause like anyone but the rich and fancy who do this get accused of like subhuman behavior. Totally. It has to do with them being 
like not the correct kind of person, Mm -hmm. but like everyone does this. This is just what people do. Like, this is like, I, you know, I mean, not everyone pushes an old lady down the stairs, but this is proof that it's like, it doesn't have to do with like any kind of classification aside from like, are you a human push to extremes? Great. Uh, oh, it's so cartoonish. It's, so it's terrible. Bad. She pushed an old lady down the stairs. I know. It's unbelievable. Goodbye, England's Rose. I know. You pushed an old lady down the stairs. I read this in Andrew Morton's book and then in Tina Brown's book and then in the fucking Prince Charles biography. And I was like, I don't know if I want to believe this. Like this, it's such extreme behavior. Like surely we're misinterpreting something. Uh-huh. This is a transcript of Diana. This is Diana's own words. She says, and then I pushed that bitch down the stairs. Literally, she says, my stepmother and I ended up having this row and I pushed her down the stairs, which gave me enormous satisfaction. My (laughs) father didn't speak to me for six months. Uh, She fucking did it, dude. There's no like, was it really some steps or like there's different accounts of it and who can say it's like, nope, she fucking pushed an old lady down the steps, dude. Most of the time, the people that we have the most extreme, horrible behavior towards the people we're most likely to snap in a violent way towards like our family and like people we've known for years and people we're intimately connected to and like <sighs> yeah i don't know that's the thing that's all that's i can't i can't say anything intelligent about it right. i'm just like yep it fucking happened we need to incorporate that into our view of princess diana as with a lot else here it's also like extremely childlike it's behavior. so immature it's so also i cannot get over this quote what she says she said to Rain before pushing her was, we've always hated you. You've ruined our family life. Oh, my I hope you're pleased God. about that. Yeah. And it's like, it's not Rain that did this. No. It just makes sense that someone would, like, put all their anger at everything and the anger that their dad deserves and that, like, the whole situation yeah. deserves and, like... Being born into this fucked up family whose behaviors you realize you have replicated exactly as if living some kind of curse deserve. It's like, let's let's just channel it all into this old lady. No. Ugh, yeah. Bad. This is a to- this is like a cops episode. Dude, yes. Right? <laughs> but it's just that we're in like a different genre of tabloid story. So she gets to just tell her biographer about yep. it. So we're going to leave Jerry Springer. I have two more photos for you. Okay. This is a very famous photo that you've probably seen before. Bloop. No, I haven't. Oh, you haven't seen this? No. Can you describe it? Yeah. Princess Diana is sitting in a chair. She's wearing a lovely blue dress Mm -hmm. and she's shaking hands with someone who is facing away from the camera and has a big pair of glasses on. Mm -hmm. Looks like they might be in a hospital room. Yes. But yeah, I I can't see who it is. This is the first image of Princess Diana shaking the hand of someone with AIDS. Oh. It is 1987. Oh, wow. And one thing I never knew about this photo that is so moving to me is there was so much stigma around AIDS at the time. It's deliberate that you can't see this guy's face because he didn't want his loved ones to see who he was. Oh, wow. So there's 12 people that she's visiting in this hospital wing, and he is the only one that will allow himself to be photographed even from the back. Wow. Wow. That's the environment that this handshake is taking place in. And she's the one who's who's able to to show her face because she's the fucking princess. She's the fucking princess. So she's like bigger than AIDS stigma. Yeah. We talk so much shit about raising awareness on the show, but this is Mm -hmm. one of the most effective acts of raising awareness in philanthropy history. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many myths around HIV at this time of how you can get it, who is safe to touch. Mm -hmm. I mean, this did 
so much to normalize people living with HIV. Yeah. And I, I feel like just from a practical perspective, like if you see the princess of Wales taking that, what you perceive as that kind of a risk and are like, maybe it's fine. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's the kind of thing that like, you can quote statistics all day. You can tell people facts all day, but like there are these mammalian responses where yeah. like you really must just first create a system where there is such a thing as a princess and then get a picture of a princess shaking hands mm-hmm. and looking happy to be in the company of someone who is HIV yeah. positive. And she's, I mean, this becomes one of her big issues. Obviously, it's something she's very famous for now. It appears that she got interested in this issue because her friends kept dying. She knew a lot of people in the world of dance and art and, you know, writers and actors. And, you know, this was to the extent that she had sort of close friends. These were all people that were sort of in the arts. And so in the Mm -hmm. early 1980s, AIDS is just ripping through the art community and she's losing friends. And, Mm. you know, there's a lot of closeted gay men at the time that are working for the palace and Prince Charles's secretary dies of AIDS. Mm. She has the feeling that this is sort of all around her. And so she starts going to AIDS hospices. And another really interesting thing is that she starts bringing William and Harry with her. Mm. She'll do this thing where she's on the way to, you know, a hospice care center or a homeless shelter, and she'll just sort of tell them, like, this is how a welfare state works. Especially with homeless shelters, she would always tell them that, like, we are extremely lucky, and these are normal people, and they're in hard times. Like, you need to not be afraid to touch these people. You need to not be afraid to be close to these people. They're people just like you and me. Also, I feel like bringing children into, you know, these photos, these public images of interacting with people with AIDS, like that, again, is like very powerful public messaging. Yeah, yeah. that they're safe to be around children. Absolutely. And not just children, but royal children. Like yeah. these are the royal babies. These are the most, these are the most valuable little toddlers mm-hmm. that can be conceived of. And just like the optics of you know, not just the, the demonstrating the safety of the interaction, but like showing the value of someone yeah. by, you know, bringing the royal children around them. It's interesting. I mean, I feel like, again, like this is her correctly understanding the system she's in and the power that she has and mm-hmm. then using it well. Yeah. It seems like it's almost a compulsion for her. I mean, it seems like a major way that she gets self-esteem. Yeah. I mean, if I pushed an old lady down the stairs, I'd want <laughs> I mean, to do some good things yeah. for other people. <laughs> I mean, there's a really interesting scene where, you know, the the royal family has this sort of country home that is the next door neighbor to the house where she grew up. Hmm. Sometime after her family moves out of it, that old manor house gets turned into like a facility for adults with developmental disabilities, just like people who are handicapped living in this big building. Mm -hmm. And so one afternoon, she's just curious, no cameras, no press, no anything. She just like wanders down and knocks on the door and is like, hey, can I meet the people who live here? Mm. This, This seems like something that she was interested in doing like as a person. This wasn't... I mean, of course, there were photo ops in these things, too, but it wasn't like she had to have the press there ready for these moments. It's like she would just go and do it. Mm-hmm. There's also a thing when Charles breaks his arm in this polo accident, she goes to the hospital and, you know, there's not much to do. He's sleeping, whatever. She wanders down the hall and she ends up hanging out with his family where the wife has fallen into a coma and she just starts visiting them every day. Huh. And eventually 
the wife dies and she like goes to their house and has dinner with them. This is like months hmm. later. She remembers them. Wow. It's really fascinating to me because I always assumed that there was like some level of cynicism in her doing this kind of philanthropy. Hmm. But it seems like it's something that she like has to do or something that's a big part of her self-conception. Yeah, it's very dark that we correctly assume that if someone famous is doing this kind of photo op philanthropy that mm -hmm. it's like primarily cynically motivated yes it's also yeah. a very interesting teamwork thing because according to charles's fawning biography so take this with whatever size salt grain you want mm. he's doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff like he's not good at you know visiting people in hospice and shaking hands that's not his forte but it's apparently he is extremely good at raising money and like identifying yeah. causes where he can actually help so i guess at one point he's interested in conserving romanian villages because Ceausescu is bulldozing a bunch of old villages. Because he wants to save vampires. I think it's like he fucking read about something in a fucking magazine article. My understanding is like most rich people philanthropy is based on fucking magazine articles that they read or like people they bump into at the guacamole at conferences. Like it's not done in any <laughs> kind of systematic way. And so he gets it in his head and he raises $70 million to preserve Romanian villages. Wow. It's interesting to me that neither one of them were canny enough to see that, like, there are huge limitations on what Princess Diana can achieve by, like, going to places and shaking hands, right? Like, raising awareness is extremely limited in a lot of circumstances. And also, Prince Charles is good at this behind-the-scenes stuff. So I wish that, like, there had been a conversation of, like, look, two completely different aspects of philanthropy appeal to us. So, like, why don't we team up and try to have the most impact that we can? But they their mm -hmm. marriage was so destroyed at this point that they couldn't even have a basic conversation of like, hey, how can we maximize this? Yeah. And if they're seeing themselves as competing with each other, yes. like in this basic adversarial situation, then like, why would you want to like do something where you could be mutually helpful to each other? Yes. That would be terrible. I know. That, this is the thing. And he, he sort of belittles it because he's like, well, you're not really having any impact. You're just going there and meeting people. Ah, Charles. I know. And she's just like, oh, well, you're just raising a bunch of money, but you're not actually doing anything with like hearts and minds. Because honestly, you know, uh. to change government policy on HIV, you do have to do some hearts and minds shit. Like this stuff actually yes. works on changing the minds of policymakers. And policy is what you need to solve social problems. So, like, yeah. they're both right in their way. It's very funny that, like, Prince Charles hasn't heard this amazing asset and he refuses to use her, you know? And it's like he's someone's given him a Stradivarius and he's using it to prop the door open. Yes. And so there's this really moving scene in Andrew Morton's book where one of her friends named Adrian Ward-Jackson, he's sort of a gallery arts guy. He's on a bunch of boards of a bunch of arts institutions. He gets HIV and she visits him. It's not quite every day, but it's definitely every week. He lives in this sort of one-bedroom apartment in Mayfair, and she'll just, like, pop over for an hour or two on afternoons, sometimes with William and Harry, and just hang out with this guy who's basically wasting away from late-stage HIV. Mm. You know, he only wants a few people around him when he dies, and he decides that he wants her to be one of them, and so he gives her a special pager mm. so that no matter what she's doing, she will be there when he starts to fade. Wow. And so she's up at Balmoral. It's August of 1989, and she gets this page. All the flights are down. She can't get a private jet. So she drives eight hours back to London to be with him in his last days. And mm. she is. Mm. This is from Andrew wow. Morton's book. Diana was at the opposite end of the country. She drove 600 miles south through the night with her police protection officer. Her abrupt departure did not go over well with the royal family, 
who were assembled in Scotland for the annual reunion. In her rush, Diana had failed to observe protocol and ask the queen for the customary permission to leave. <laughs> it's like, come oh on. Oh my God. Friends dying of AIDS. Gotta get Ugh. the queen's permission to leave the country house. <sighs> and then... During the following days, it was insisted that she return promptly. The family <gasps> felt that a token visit would have sufficed and seemed uneasy about her display of loyalty and devotion, which clearly went far beyond the traditional call of duty. Oh, fuck them all. It's absurd to act as if this is some sort of deficit. Like you missed whatever fucking hunting on a Sunday afternoon to go visit your friend as he fucking died. Like what? Mm -hmm. There's also drama about her attending his funeral because royal family members are not supposed to attend the funerals of commoners. So she has to, like, lobby to go to this guy's funeral. Wow. And apparently she just puts her foot down and she's like, fuck you, fuck this, yeah. and just goes to the funeral. Yeah, because, like, what, what are they going to do? Like, arrest yeah, her? Yeah, exactly. Fuck you. And also... She understands public affairs in a way that they do not. And having the princess crying at the funeral of someone with AIDS is actually very good for the cause. Like, this humanizes AIDS. It's amazing that, like, you know, aside from the political reasons that I think should be readily apparent to people, you know, that this is something that is a positive for the royal family overall. I guess, like, let her do it. It's going to make you look good. There's also the fact of, like, someone is actively dying in this story. Yes. Like, can you people not see that? Like, what are you preoccupied with? What's more important than that? I know. What, what is the value that you're preserving at this point, right? Yeah. So last thing I'm going to show you, we are going to end with another table read. Yay. Did you know that there is also a sex tape of Diana? I think I knew that vaguely, but I don't know who it's with. These are known as the squidgy gate tapes. Oh my. Because squidgy is a term of endearment in Great Britain. And the man that she's talking to calls her squidgy. I think it's like 32 times or something. Wow. And so these tapes leak eventually during the divorce. Oh no. So check your email again. Oh, you sent me squidgy tapes. It's rough, dude. I wanted to sort of begin and end the episode symmetrically with these tapes, but fucking hell, this tape is so boring. It's unbelievable how boring it is. Oh, it'll be like Michelle remembers. Uh, do you want to be Gilby or do you want to be Diana? You should be Diana because you're a lady. Okay. I guess I felt, I feel like Diana is a pretty meaty role. So I thought maybe you would like to play her <laughs> since you know so much about no, her. Diana is the least meaty role. Okay. This is a conversation with a man named James Gilby, who she is having an affair with. And during this conversation, it is so palpable that she's just not into him at all. <laughs> like, oh, no. She is distracted. At one point, he asks her to turn the TV down, and she refuses. <laughs> so this is like reading people's text transcripts where they're, like, writing K to each other a lot. Dude, I know. And he's so into her. But she's just like, yeah, I guess. Mm, okay, okay, so you have, yeah. to, you have to capture that that in Gilby. In yes. Portrayal of Gilby. Yes. Okay. So, okay, I'll start. I'm excited. What have you had on today? What have you been wearing? A pair of black jodhpur things on at the moment and a pink polo neck. Really? Looking good? Yes. Are you? Yes. Dead good? I think it's good. You do? Yes. <laughs> yes. And what's on your feet? A pair of flat... <laughs> a pair of flat black pumps. Very chic. So before we get to the next excerpt, it feels like to me like he's trying to push it into dirty talk. Like, mm -hmm. what are you wearing? And she's just like, yeah, I look, it, it's fine. I look fine. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, she's not really playing along. And then he just switches to logistics. And he's like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, what kind of shoes? 
<laughs> okay, so now we have another excerpt. This is toward the end, and it's like even more depressing. Uh. Oh, Squidgy, I love you. I love you. I love you. You are the nicest person in the whole wide world. Pardon? Nicest person in the whole wide world. Well, darling, you are to me too. Sometimes. Uh. <laughs> it's so... Uh, it's like you wanted it to be parallel to the Charles and Camilla one where it's like, oh, they found someone they like. Yeah, I did. I wanted it to be a sexy squeaky tape. It goes on like this. She's not listening to him. He makes kissing noises. Uh. The tabloids try to make this like sexual because at one point he mentions... I haven't jerked off in four days or something. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, yeah, it's been raining or something like that. Like something completely diversionary. She's sitting there indifferently while he's like a little dog humping her leg, basically. No. And she's just like, I am trying to eat these beans. The only thing that's actually interesting about this is the way that it was recorded. Mm. This is a phone call that takes place on New Year's Eve of 1989. And in 1990, one of the tabloids comes to her and says, we have a recording of you with James Gilby doing sex talk and stuff. Hmm. And so she becomes convinced correctly that her phone is tapped. Yeah. What's amazing about this is the tabloids contact her and say, we have this tape. Can you confirm that it's you? She gets wildly paranoid about this and then she doesn't hear anything. Hmm. So she basically exists in this mode of like, there's proof that I'm having an affair mm. that is going to come out, but I don't know when it's going to come out. Wow, that's terrifying. This is also a time when she's gaining a lot of confidence. So one of the things that happens, this is actually terrible. They go on a skiing holiday and there's an avalanche and one of the people in their party dies. Oh, God. And I guess she sort of leaps into action about the various diplomatic things that have to happen because, like, they have to get the body back and it's in Switzerland. So, like, there have to be, like, ambassadors involved in these kinds of conversations. And she realizes that, like, she's actually good at this. She's always been cut out of this by Charles and she's always had this inferiority complex about her intellect. Hmm. And during this time when Charles is basically shell-shocked because this guy died trying to save him successfully. <laughs> and after this is over, she's like, oh, I, I'm actually like, maybe I'm not as stupid as I thought I was. And maybe oh, I'm actually pretty oh, good at this job. Oh, finally. And in 1988, she starts to see somebody about her eating disorder. Oh, my gosh. Oh, thank God. So one of the few friends that she's kept from her previous life, a woman named Carolyn Bartholomew, she says, look, the reason why you are so depressed, the reason why you're so tired, the reason why you don't have any energy during the day, it's your fucking eating disorder. You're not getting vitamins. She's not getting calories. I don't know how I feel about the ethics of this, but she says, if you don't get help for your eating disorder, I'm going to go to the press. Oh, wow. And I'm going to tell them everything. Wow. And it works. Diana finally starts seeing a doctor about her eating disorder. And how does that go? So this is an excerpt from Andrew Morton's book. For the next few months, he visited her every week. He encouraged her to read books about her condition. Even though she had to read them secretly in case they were seen by her husband or members of staff, she found herself inwardly rejoicing as she turned over the pages. This is me. This is me. I'm not the only one, she told Carolyn. Huh. Oh, my God. She thought she was the only one. I know. Oh. He finally correctly diagnoses that the problem is not like her being broken as a person. The problem is that she's in this terrible marriage. Uh -huh. This is fascinating. She doesn't end the bulimia, but she gets it much less severe than it had been. However, it still spikes. 
whenever she goes to Balmoral. So there's something about sort of these intense periods when she's with Charles, she's with the royal family, that part her in this desperate state. Yeah, again, this is why British country house books are most interesting when there are murders involved, because then people (laughs) have to talk to each other. Another thing that she does now that she's gaining some confidence and she feels like the eating disorder is sort of starting to get under control is she confronts Camilla. What happens? Where does that happen? There's a birthday party that Charles invites her to sort of as a formality because he knows that she doesn't really like his friends. But she's like, yeah, I'll go. See you there at eight. He's like, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. So they show up to this party together and she realizes within, you know, 10, 15 minutes that he's gone. And then she looks around the room and Camilla's gone too. And she's like, mm-hmm. okay, fuck this. She goes down the stairs. She finds them not like making out or anything, but just like sitting and having an intense conversation on a couch. Mm-hmm. She comes in and she's like, Charles, leave. Me and Camilla need to talk. And he's like, uh, what are you going to talk about? And she's like, we need to talk. Just us girls. And sends Charles upstairs. So she turns to Camilla and says, I know what's going on between you and Charles. And according to her account, Camilla says to her, you've got everything you ever wanted. You've got all the men in the world falling in love with you. And you've got two beautiful children. What more do you want? (gasps) And Diana says, I want my husband. And then they threw each other into a lily pond. (laughs) And then mud just pours from the ceiling and they start wrestling. Yeah. I mean, Tina Brown doesn't trust this account. Because once again, the dialogue is too good. Yeah, it's very good dialogue. So maybe this happened. Maybe I mean, it's quite clear that she did confront Camilla, but we don't know what really happened in that exchange. It's also interesting to me that she says, even in her own account, I want my husband, because it doesn't sound like she does actually want her husband. It's similar to the situation with Rain. Mm. She's blaming Rain for everything that went wrong in her family and not placing the blame with her dad, who at least deserves much more of it. Mm -hmm. And with this, it's like Prince Charles would be treating her like garbage with or without Camilla around. Yeah. But like, it's easier to hate Camilla if you want to believe there's some hope for your marriage or yeah. your situation, which like yeah. maybe she still does. Yeah, that makes sense. And also Camilla is, you know, choosing to have an affair with her husband and has been doing so for years and years. Right. It's not great. Ugh. But so the combination of this growing confidence in herself and growing paranoia and alienation from the royal family makes her start to make moves to get out. Mm-hmm. So she starts thinking about how she's going to escape. I mean, this is a, here's a, a bigger question. Mm. If the royal family believes that, like, you have to marry a virgin, then, like, how do they feel about divorce? And, oh my like, God. How recently have members of the royal family started getting divorced and like because it just seems like monumental and also yeah if you can't go to a commoner's funeral i know then how are you gonna get divorced i mean what she's worried about and this drives all of her sort of anger paranoia everything she does during the actual divorce which we're going to talk about next episode is she's afraid that they're going to take her kids yeah. because remember what happened with her mom yeah yes exactly and this is a more extreme situation yes because there's heirs involved and the sense of being humiliated by you know by someone saying actually i don't want to keep doing this yeah she has a very reasonable fear that if she tries to leave charles they will get really ugly yeah she knows that it's going to be a battle of public opinion if she tries to leave this marriage And so she wants to get her story out. And so she starts fishing around and she finds 
Andrew Martin, and she starts sneaking him tapes. Hmm. How did she find him? He wrote a fawning biography of her before. <laughs> like, she, she very deliberately found a journalist that everything he writes is, like, shitty to Charles and good to her. <laughs> so she chooses, obviously, like, the most fawning journalist who's going to basically print her transcripts almost verbatim and not challenge any of her narratives, which is what he does. Mm -hmm. Access journalism. I wish she would have picked, like, a female journalist. I don't know. I wish she would have picked a better mm. journalist. <laughs> I wish she hadn't pushed rain legs down the stairs, you know? We all do our best. I know, you know? And so... Next week's episode is going to start with the publication of his book, and the day after his book is published, they have their first conversation about separating. Wow. Oh, my God. I'm really excited. I want to watch this marriage fall apart. I know. Like, wet toast. <laughs> I'm excited, and I really don't know what's coming. I mean, I know they end up being divorced, but... <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I really... Oh, boy. We all deserve a soap opera, Mike. Thank you, you know, for giving us one. We all deserve a soap opera and baked beans on toast and EastEnders. Yes, let's all have baked beans on toast tonight. <laughs> 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 <laughs>